So today, today we have uh, retired Colonel Jamie Williamson, who is with Special Forces, who served off and on in Afghanistan for a long period of time and has spent the last three weeks to date, it's now September 3rd, uh, helping with the evacuation of Afghanistan's allies as well as Americans on the inside, and it's a continuing operation. So Jamie, thank you very much for joining us today. And why don't you uh, give us your background of where you've been, how long in Afghanistan, and then we'll move on to the evacuations. So I, uh, I retired from Special Forces after 30 plus years of service in, in uh, 2012. Been to Afghanistan many times. I, uh, I was in Kosovo when 9-11 happened. I came back to the States and redeployed to Afghanistan uh, shortly after 2002. Um, I was with Special Forces units all over the country, different parts of Afghanistan geographically. I was there both as uh, in a military capacity and then also as uh, a defense contractor supporting the efforts of the intelligence community and special forces. So I was in and out of Afghanistan over many, many years for a period of weeks to months at a time. Um, but we managed uh, in various capacities, cleared U.S. Uh, interpreters. We managed the uncleared local Afghan interpreters. Uh, we recruited and vetted local Afghans for intelligence purposes, for the Hatchet Force, Reactionary Force at Taft and Hart Airfield. Uh, we did a whole lot of things. Uh, so I, I've been around, uh, I understand the culture, ate a lot of uh, goat and chicken with the Afghan people, uh, so, <laughs> ate, ate the goat's eyeballs and all that good stuff. So uh and and was heavily involved in in different operations both special operations and title 50 intelligence type uh, mechanisms but uh now we are i am not acting in the capacity of a contractor several of my colleagues are also defense contractors but we as individuals have stepped up to try to write uh, an egregious wrong where our government failed and uh, our priority is to repatriate U.S. citizens back to the United States safely. Also green card holders. The next category are the SIVs who are in or in process of getting their SIV status. And then also great concern are what we're calling the undocumented allies. These individuals are known and vetted personnel, local Afghan personnel that have worked in support of DOD or the Afghan government or Army Corps of Engineers, a host of organizations, but they are known and vetted through individuals, their documents are checked. So it's not like we're it's not like we're moving uh, unvetted. When we speak of refugees, these are not random Afghans that want to leave their country. They are people that have sacrificed. Uh, there are NDS officers, which are the equivalent of, uh, it's like the Afghan CIA, their intelligence apparatus. There are ANA, Afghan National Army, field grade officers. There are interpreters, there are drivers, there are engineers, there are, there's a lot of female uh, magistrates. I think we have about 124, I believe, at-risk women uh, who served in various capacities as, as police, military, prosecutors, and so on. Uh, many of these people are actively being hunted by the Taliban for retribution. Uh, they make no bones about what retribution is at the hands of the Taliban. It's rape, torture, and execution. Uh, okay, so let's, let, 
So let's let's go back to three weeks ago. You get the call. Under under, give us the circumstances under under which you got it and what happened uh, since then. Because obviously, as you know, I was in Afghanistan before 9-11 when I was doing my first human trafficking right. investigation. Um, and and I I know what I saw before 9-11. Uh, and I know why we went in after 9-11. Um, but let's let's go back to the chronological order of, you know, about three weeks ago, you got the call and then you decided to jump in on this. So I, I can't tell you exactly who called who. Uh, I, I made some calls. I received some calls. Uh, all of our organization are comprised of former intelligence officers from CIA, DIA, uh, the former special operators like myself. We have former State Department diplomats, uh, various intelligence operatives. I have former interpreters who work for me that were cleared at least at the secret or top secret level. They are known and trusted personnel that I've served with in Afghanistan. Um, and we've relied heavily on them for their family contacts, their trusted contacts in country to give us a real time portrayal of what ground truth really is as far as Taliban activity and checkpoints. And we've also used them to uh, set up the rat lines uh the rat line is kind of a, a a military term probably going back to the oss in the second world war it's the military equivalent of an underground railroad to to move personnel from a place of danger to a place of safety uh, that sums it up so when you when you guys decided to do this Tell the public why you decided to jump in on this with a separate operation outside of the, the realm of the current State Department and DOD. So there is there is a shadow government uh, operating with what I'll call the Biden regime. Uh, my personal views are that it's not Joe Biden that's running the country. It's the puppet masters behind the curtain whoever they may be, I have a pretty good idea, but uh, Biden is just a figurehead while he lasts to do the bidding of others. But he's made it very clear that the government or the regime's agenda is not congruent with our, our own vision. We, be, we betrayed allies in Vietnam when I was a young man, a teenager. Uh, Special Forces had worked with the Montagnards. I was a part of that later during the gulf war uh in iraq where we worked with the kurds uh, i spent the better part of a year in northern iraq uh we turned our back on the kurds when they needed us most uh, and here we are repeating those same mistakes again and walking out on our trusted allies i think aside from the afghanistan picture itself the larger strategic objective is probably to undermine the credibility of the United States as a dominant partner on the world stage. And the resounding ripple effects of this uh, are going to be severe and long lasting. Uh, it's going to affect our foreign policy over several decades now. Uh, loss of credibility with our, our NATO partners. I'm sure the Ukrainians are nervous, as are the Taiwanese as are the Baltic states. Uh, nobody can depend on the United States now. Nobody feels like we truly have their back. And if we do, for how long? Are we just going to walk away and wash our hands like we did just recently with our Afghan allies? Did you get intelligence that that the um, the Biden administration was in fact going to be leaving people behind? Three weeks ago, four weeks ago, did you get? Were you getting indications like that? It was. We were they were getting not indications before. It was kind of late in the game where we finally figured out that the administration had their secret list of who was important to the administration, um, and that was both U.S. citizens as well as 
Afghans that were important. And when I say important, there were indications that essentially money was being paid to the ISI in Pakistan as a bribe. After the ISI would take their cut, that they would make arrangements uh, with the Taliban to let these people pass through. And it was also State Department officials that were operating on HKIA in concert with the military to let those individuals through. Now, outside of their list, we had our own resources to get people to and on to HKIA. And it's more than getting somebody to the airport. There, you know, we played whack-a-mole with the gates, uh, which I think was part deliberate on the part of the State Department, and then also it was dictated by events on the ground that closed gates. So, so you're saying basically that the ISI was, uh, or state was being paid to get certain people out that the ISI wanted, and they were getting a cut, or? Well, it, it wasn't so much who the ISI wanted, I think, as much as the Biden administration and the State Department, who they wanted. And we had an individual that had certain high-level access within the State Department. And there was pushback from other high-level officials in the State Department uh, that were pretty outraged as well. That, you know, and this was at the expense of other U.S. citizens with blue passport holders. The Pentagon assured me if, if, if they had blue passports at the gate, they would be allowed in. I said, that's totally false. I mean, we just had 15 blue passport holders standing in front of the gate. They were denied entrance. Uh, the military was taking their orders. There was a four-star general that told an individual, we're not running this show. We're along for the ride. This is a White House State Department show. And the military was handed crap and told to make a sandwich, essentially. Uh, we had uh, a brigade commander from the 82nd from my old unit that turned out a bunch of orphans that... Uh, he didn't like the way that we had gotten them onto HKIA and had them thrown out, Colonel Kleisman. Uh, so, so give us give us some examples, Jamie, of um, getting people to the airport, uh, the perimeters that they had to pass to even get to the gate, and what happened at the gate from people that you were talking to on the ground that were part of the rat line to move people to the airport. So our process, once we had these vetted individuals, we had saved electronically and saved their documents, their CAT cards, their letters of recommendation. If they got caught carrying these, it was a death sentence. So it wasn't like they could show up at the gate and say, I'm Abdul Mustafa, here's my letter. I work, you know, because if the Taliban intercepted them, they'd be shot on the spot. Uh, we already had one guy that was severely beaten to the point of being crippled because he had a UN badge. Uh, we had trusted Afghan partners outside the wire that were facilitating movement of these vetted families, American citizens, green card holders, and SIVs, or other people that had, had worked and supported the U.S. government. So... Either they would move to the airport on their own if they had the means, or we would facilitate that through through cars, passing through the Taliban checkpoints. Uh, sometimes bribes were offered. Sometimes they were able to talk their way through. So getting them to the airport was easy if we got if we were negotiating all these Taliban checkpoints. Over time, there were concentric rings of security. Uh, the checkpoints became more sophisticated. So once we get them to the airport, we had to physically bully our way through crowds of thousands, like maybe 
20,000 people are gathered around the Abbey Gate, move these people in close proximity to the gate. A lot of times they were given what amounted to a sugar pill of, if they weren't on the, the secret acceptable list of entrance, they were, oh, uh, let's just wait over here to the left and uh, we'll call for your escort. And of course, no escort would ever come because no calls were ever made. It was just crowd control and placating these individuals that they had no intention of letting on. Now, we had contacts on the inside. We had, uh, I'm not going to go into the details, but we had cooperative military and contractors. We had other government personnel. That, we had our own network, underground network that was all back channel that we were able to get people onto HKIA. We had people physically pulled off of airplanes that we had paid for, chartered aircraft, um, where favored people were put onto those planes. And that included US citizens that were removed from those flights. You're talking uh, about people born in America. Yeah, yeah. Some born in America, some were naturalized citizens, but documented blue passport US citizens uh and their families uh, and why were they taken off why were they taken off the planes and what was the stated reason at the time and what were your communications when you would find that out with the people back here in america that you were talking to at either dod or state department when you would raise that with with them what did these bureaucrats say to you at the time what was the justification well, we were we were working at very high levels of Department of Defense, uh, Central Command, uh, the Pentagon. Uh, they were, you know, there, there's there's two levels. There's the shadow government which operates, and then there's another shadow government within the shadow government of people that are trying to adhere to the constitutional oath that they've taken. And at the risk of their careers and disobeying orders, I mean, we had one guy say, basically, screw this Biden guy. We're going to go get our people. And they did. And what was the just, but Jamie, hold on for a second. What's the justification of taking an American off a plane during the shutdown of a 20 year war when there are Americans born in America? There is no justification. There's well, I know no that, but what was the state? What was the stated reason? I mean, what what's the stated reason for somebody for somebody making that decision? So that that was unclear. First of all, we didn't control the manifest. We have our own manifest of who we're tracking through the system, from right. safe house to extraction, essentially. But we don't control who actually gets on the airplane. Um, so we had people that were on the airplane. We had Afghan commandos with guns that physically removed people. We weren't in a position, you know, they had the guns, we don't. So that was a lost argument right there. And then we had other people from State Department that said, no, we don't care about your people, we're putting our people on. And the justification that they gave is that they were a high value. Well. We had people that worked for the Afghan intelligence service. We had American citizens. We had interpreters, uh, a whole variety of people that, uh, but essentially it didn't matter because they weren't important to the administration. And what I'm calling the State Department's secret list of who they were willing to help at the expense of other U.S. citizens. That well, in general, there. what was that list? The people they're willing to help. Who The people they're willing to help on their list, in general, who were those people? I have no idea who they were. But they were, they were obviously important enough to the Biden administration that they were willing to leave other U.S. citizens on the ground, stranded. Were they Americans, uh, you know? Well, absolutely. Yeah, they're blue passport holders. Caucasian. No, but I mean, the people that got priority, were they Americans? Were they Afghans? Were they, do you A know? A mixture of both. Um, 
So they, went at, so they put Afghans on the plane ahead of American citizens, basically. Yes, they did, inclusively. Mm -hmm. So do we know if USAID was involved with this since Samantha Powers is running USAID these days? I don't know that for a fact. I, I strongly suspect. Um, I've been in touch with USAID back channel. Uh, we've tried to get their people out. We were also asked to get some UN people out. You know, I, m my priority are our own citizens. And then my, when I say my people, those were the contractors, the employees of people that worked for me, uh, both American citizens and Afghans. Um, and then we also have some, what we'll call high value targets, people that are very much at risk because of their positions in the Afghan government and actively being hunted by by the Taliban. And they will be executed horribly and publicly. And they'll be lucky if they get a bullet in the head instead of something worse. Uh, these are the prioritized. Yeah, I, I said that I often feel like I'm caught between Schindler's List and Sophie's Choice playing God and deciding who is important, who do we owe and who do we have a reasonable chance of success in extracting and getting them removed with minimal risk? I mean, there's risk in everything. There's risk at staying at home and hiding out. There's risk in moving to the safe house. There's risk of moving in the rat line. Uh, you have to accept risk and you do what you can to mitigate it. Um, but there's always risk in this kind of environment. We have people say, well, can we give you, can you give us a guarantee? Well, no, can't do that. The enemy gets a vote in this. So. Right, right. D Jamie, are you doing uh, airlifts as well as uh, overland? Or, or do you not want to say? So we had been doing airlifts. Um, we still have people on the ground in Masri Sharif. This 48-hour hold has turned into, I think we're on a four-day hold now. Uh, the rules keep changing. Uh, we, we have, to my last knowledge, we have three aircraft on the ground. People manifested for those flights. The Taliban had pulled people off of the aircraft, and they were approving the manifest as far as who was able to fly. I don't know where the approval is coming from. State Department's gone. Now, I don't know whether they're still having back channel communications with people that are important for state. Um, I know we have families that we're trying to get out. Um, I'm very hesitant to say much about that because I don't want to put them in jeopardy. And uh, we're prepared to resume uh, flight operations if certain parameters are fulfilled. Uh, we do have access to aircraft where we are slowly getting some donations to come in. We were pretty much shut down due to lack of funds. We had the resources, we just didn't have the money to sustain operations. Um, so there was a hiatus after the 31st where everybody that we had gotten onto HKIA or MEZ had either flown out or or they're still waiting there. I don't have a whole lot of high hopes for the people that are at HKIA. We still are hopeful to get people out of MEZ. Um, so we'll see what happens. It's a very dynamic situation. The rules seem to be changing daily, if not hourly. Um, but we'll see. We do have people that are in communication with the Taliban. Um, sometimes you got to dance with the devil to get things done. And um, But the longer this goes on, the more sophisticated they're becoming in terms of their own internal security apparatus and their own organization uh, mm -hmm. so that the quicker we get the people out the better 
So tell us, tell us um, how we can help. I mean, I want you to talk about your um, Archangel project. Um, that's it's one of your oh. venues, uh, and I know that there's the twenty four fourteen. So just get, get, t tell us what you need because you say you've got the apparatus for, it, but you need the funds. How do, how do people help you with this operation? So we have three separate five hundred one C threes. Tax deductible, fully vetted lawyers, accountants—they're they're all totally compliant, uh, and both of them are controlled by people. Uh, what I'll call the core—the core of our organization, which is really just a handful of people. Um, we are working remotely, spread out in different time zones in the United States and across the world. Somehow, in spite of uh, all the challenges between our own government and physical separation, we've been pretty successful. We've gotten over uh, 2,000 people, and I think that's a conservative figure right now. That we've gotten 2,000 people out of the country. We have people in the pipeline right now. I'm not going to go into details about that. Um, how many? Of, how many? How many people in the pipeline? I mean, what's the what's the end goal of getting people out? Is it is it thousands? Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, I don't. I don't think that the State Department even knows how many American citizens are left in country. I don't think they know, and they certainly don't care, in spite of all the rhetoric. Uh, and trust me when I say this: these are not people who have chosen to remain in Afghanistan. They're fearful of their lives. They're depending every day. I'm getting Mr. Jamie letters. You're my only hope. Uh, it's heartbreaking, really, because there are there are thousands of people that that we owe. That I think the 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 American citizens are probably in the hundreds at this point. Um, I don't think State Department knows. I know how many we have, um, and they're in various stages. Uh, they're afraid to leave the, their places of safety right now. Um, so I think the American citizens stand a better chance because it would not be in the best interest of the Taliban to start executing Americans uh, if they want to be viewed as, as a legitimate government. And, and I'm sure the Biden administration will probably recognize them as such. Uh, but the Taliban doesn't have full control of any mercenaries that are in country that are Afghanis that belong to any of the other tribes. Let's be clear about that. Right. The Taliban may, doesn't have full control right. people inside Afghanistan. So aside from the Panjshir Valley and the Northern Alliance folks, or what once were referred to as the Northern Alliance, there are other enclaves of resistance throughout the country. They're small. They're not numerous, but uh, partially it's due to terrain and, and freedom fighters. Uh, they have very limited resources. We've, when I say we, you know, the Biden government has turned over so much equipment. Uh, so they have the, uh, they have all the sophisticated and classified electronic tracking for cell phones. They have jammers, they have trackers. Uh, and don't think for a moment that these are Aboriginal people that don't know how to use this stuff. Uh, they have some very tech-savvy, sophisticated, and educated people within the Taliban. Uh, and then, of course, they get support from the ISI and the Russians as well. So uh, this is not the new and friendly Taliban, uh, in spite of how they may want to present themselves now. So there's that threat. There's the manpad threat of uh, not only Russian equipment, but now whatever equipment we've allowed to fall into the hands of the enemy, which is significant. I'm sure you've seen all the memes and the postings about they, they've probably gotten more sophisticated military equipment than we've given aid packages to our allies. Uh, that's a whole other topic entirely, which infuriates me. And mark my words, at some point, whether it comes across the Mexican border 
which is wide open to a sleeper cell, uh, these weapons will be used against American citizens, either at home or abroad in one capacity or another. Um, that may be enough to bring down the Biden administration, but then what replaces it? So we're kind of back to square one in that respect. Well, le leaving the, the politics of this aside, okay, in terms of uh, how much money you, you've, you've, you've got the manpower from what you're saying right now, if everybody survives inside for the rat lines. And then there's a matter of extraction, and then there's a matter of uh, safe houses, et cetera. What kind of budget are we looking for, and how do people make contributions to you? And I, I just full disclosure to the audience, you have shared with me some of the communications from people, desperate calls for help. Um, so I, I can attest to the fact that those, in fact, do exist. Uh, and you and I have known each other for a long time. So, I mean, tell us how, you know, what what, what kind of budget are you looking for? I mean, and how many numbers are we talking about? And without disclosing any of the operationals, where they can make donations to? So the budget that we're looking at is literally in the millions. Um, we're, uh, we are chartering uh, commercial aircraft or private charters. Uh, in, in some cases, we've had promises of, uh, of commercial aircraft being donated to move refugees. Everything, though, is dependent on the ground game and us having passengers to move, which is dependent on us having money to get them from their places of refuge now to safe houses and eventually moving them by one means or another to areas of safety, wherever that may be. And then they will probably quarantine for COVID and additional screening and verification. And then they will move on either to the United States or to a third country that has uh, agreed to accept them as refugee status. We've sent people to Albania, to Kosovo, to Italy. And it, part of it depends on how these people are categorized. We have groups of Christian families that are the remaining leaders of the Christian church in Afghanistan. Um, are, you, are you getting any help from... Real quick, Colonel, are you getting any help from the Christian denominations in this? We are. Um, I don't want to start naming names, but um, I can say that we've been in touch with the Vatican. We've been in touch with the Italian government. We've been in touch with another government with a, a, a predominantly Christian um, population. Uh, I hear now that India maybe accepting refugees. Tajikistan has agreed to accept, I believe, 100,000 refugees. So 100,000 may sound like a lot, but that quota could be filled within days. Um, and then there's also the competing factor of refugees who just want to get out of Afghanistan that have no connection to ever having worked for the U.S. government. So we're competing with those elements as well, uh, as opposed to our vetted people and those known right. and worthy individuals that we're trying to move out. Um, and then we get into the diplomatic. It, it seems apparent that our government, that the United States, seems to be doing everything in their power to subvert any plans that organizations such as ours uh, and there are numerous parallel organizations we're in touch with some, but these, these are all veterans acting independently on their own. You've seen them all on the news and we're in touch with a bunch of them. We share intelligence, we share resources. It's not real well organized at this point because we've been in more of a reactionary mode, but we are, you know, there's strength in numbers. And, are asking us for favors we're asking others for favors and, and sharing what information we have what works and what doesn't because we all have the same end goal in mind and there are a bunch of great americans that are doing their part to uh 
to, to, to try to right uh, a terrible wrong that's been perpetrated by our government. I, I feel ashamed, and I've been apologizing on behalf of my government to people who have. I, mean, I, I, I lived with many of these people. I got all kinds of stories about some very frightening things that I look back on that I had depended on these Afghan partners to get me through. And uh, pretty much anybody who served in Afghan, uh, Afghanistan will have a very similar story of the bond that, that has been created with their interpreter. Uh, you know, we, we relied on these people through family connections and tribal connections to vet the people that we were recruiting either as local interpreters or as fighters. Uh, we even had the military or the intelligence community come to us and say, here's a list of people. Can you help us, you know, vet these? And some of them we were able to take off of the list because in many cases with certain populations, you don't buy loyalty, you just rent it for a while until the next highest bidder comes along. And, you know, we're very aware of that, but we had people that were willing to die for the United States and American soldiers, many who actually did or suffered wounds. Uh, we supported what we call the top tier or tier one forces of the military. Uh, everything, of course, was very classified and very redacted, but we were actually able to give awards, civilian awards to these people that had they been active duty military, they probably would have received silver stars, maybe a distinguished service cross in one case, certainly Purple Hearts because we had interpreters that were wounded in combat. Um, these people didn't want money. They, uh, and we were able to give them money as, as a contractor, but that's not what they wanted. They, uh, they wanted something to hang on the wall and say, you know, your, your work was appreciated. And uh, that was something that we could easily do through the units that, that we supported. Um, and there are hundreds of thousands of military that have, that have served, um, I'm sorry. There are hundreds of thousands of military that have served past 20 years uh, and they all have similar stories of this and uh, they you all know, feel as outraged and betrayed as we do. I think it would be good for both of you to talk about the fact, because I can say this as a journalist in a war zone, we can't go in without having fixers. We can't go in without interpreters. And mm -hmm. I think that it's important because Todd, you were in the, in the Balkans, Jamie, you've been around the block for a long time. Tell the importance of these relationships because, I mean, it's true. You you can't go into some of these theaters without having the means to dive deep. I know this as a journalist. And, and you know, a lot of people think, well, if the U.S. military goes in, everything's taken care of. That's not the way it works. So just no, and, and give a short successful operation. I, I can tell you um, most recently... I was, uh, I was in Africa with a colleague who you know well, um, and uh, that individual came to me and said, do you have any contacts in this particular country? Uh, as it turned out, I did. I knew former Brigadier General of that nation's special forces. He was retired, but like our generals, they're still connected. I had some expatriate special forces uh, officers that I had served with that lived in that country and we had a network of trusted local individuals that were able to give us support for security, for drivers, local knowledge. Uh, they connected me with bloggers that were in opposition to the government. We were able to write a general PSYOP plan pretty much on bar napkins on the aircraft uh, flying over. And uh, through a network of, of bloggers and opposition people, uh, we ultimately made a video that went viral to the point where I was in, in DFW airport on the escalator talking to a special forces colleague. And this woman on the escalator said, I'm sorry to eavesdrop, but are you talking about 
this particular little boy that was in question, he had been kidnapped by the government. And I said, yes, do you live in this country? And she said, no, I live in a neighboring country, but all over Africa, everybody, everybody knows about this. And we had to organize protests. And that is just to illustrate the importance of having local connections in a given country that can provide security, that can navigate you culturally through the do's and don'ts or put you in touch with influential people both in the government and, and also those that are opposed to the government. Uh, same thing when I was in Nigeria um, and in many other countries on many different continents over the years. But it's uh, we couldn't operate without these people. So, Todd, I want to turn to you, though, because when, you, when we hear people in mainstream media minimize the fact that, the, you know, and say, though, this is a success and they pair it with the um, Biden administration says, we know that that some of these mainstream journalists have been in, in country during a war. So when they say this, how do you feel about this having been in the Balkans? Well, you know, it, it, I think people need to realize that it's the personal connection that, you know, I, I as a young captain or lieutenant was thrown into Saudi Arabia and you have to go negotiate airspace with, uh, you know, some local Saudi officer and you have to make that personal connection. And I wasn't in Afghanistan, but same thing in, in other theaters. I mean, it, it's really the American soldier on the ground who has to go in and, and make that personal connection. And it is a bond that lasts for a long time. And that's what the Colonel's talking about. But um, it's anyway. I'm still in touch with Serbs, Albanians, you know, from uh, I was in I was in Kosovo, I was in uh, uh, I was in uh, Serbia, I was in uh, mm -hmm. Macedonia and other other regions in the Balkans, and still in touch mm -hmm. with those people. Uh, and and uh, they we operated on so many different levels there, uh, doing psychological operations, doing intelligence operations, uh, and then in later stages uh, with some special operations forces and taking into custody human traffickers, war criminals, uh, you name it, a bunch of bad guys. Bunch, yeah. of, ba bunch of bad guys, that's They're true. They were either killed outright or taken to the Hague for trial. So there was right. uh, some vindication of, of success in the Balkans on various levels. But again, you know, even the most seasoned and experienced special operators will tell you, you gotta have, you gotta have a ground game. And, uh, mm -hmm. and that means recruiting and vetting and ultimately trusting these local partners that we wouldn't be able to do this successfully without their help. And when we pull an operation off that has no U.S. casualties, uh, it's due in part to that local knowledge and the local partners that have allowed us to operate with that inside knowledge uh, and the, the support mechanisms. Colonel, I have a question. I, I think that um, obviously the mask has been taken off this O'Biden regime or whatever you want to call it. And, and we see what's been going on for literally since the Obama administration across the board. And I think we're seeing the culmination of that now. But I'm a firm believer that we have that's the silver lining that we see what this regime did in Afghanistan. And we still have a vast force of very capable people in the armed forces and veterans that can bring this country back from a macro standpoint. I mean, what do you, I, I'm actually optimistic that we, we have to get this government or this regime out of power, but once we can get somebody in there that is pro American values, that we could really have a big, great awakening, awakening and a uniting of the country. I mean, what are your thoughts about that? Well, one of the goals uh, that we have, I, I've been focused right now on, tactical things as far as moving people safely out of the country. But on a more strategic and parallel level, I haven't devoted a lot to this, but the show that I'm on right now, I did a show yesterday. Part of it, I'm not about self-promotion. We've kept very quiet and kept a very low under the radar profile, but 
what comes with that with exposure is the ability to drive donations uh if people don't know about you they can't donate to you now we've worked back channel for some influential and wealthy individuals that are conservative actually some that are not very conservative but they feel as as wrong as we do because this is not a partisan issue. It shouldn't be a right. partisan issue. Right. It should be about what's doing right for America, for her presence uh, globally, and certainly for her citizens, and also for her allies. Um, it's a moral. It's also a moral issue. You don't leave anybody behind. Period. So and I we work with congressional and senatorial offices, and without naming names, uh, we've been able to get constituents out. And, you know, I work with Democrats. Like I said, this is not <laughs> American citizens are American citizens. We're right. not asking them their, their party affiliation when we, we rescue them. Um, but staffers have said that they had never seen their senator so pissed off. Um, on the phone with the White House and the State Department about the way this has been handled. That's and good. To me, that's it, a good sign. It, it, it is good. And it was very encouraging to me uh, as an American to, to know that we're, we're past the partisan stage. We're, we're more about what's doing the right. We still have a long way to go, no doubt. But there are those uh, individuals in the Democratic Party there are people within the Biden White House that have expressed their disagreement with the way this has been handled. We needed to get out of Afghanistan. There's no doubt about that. We get into this thing by our leaders, whether they're Republican or Democrat, without ever having stated what the desired end state is or the metric for victory or whatever we're calling success. And there's no exit plan. And it just gets into this. This is why you know we've had a twenty-year war, uh, squandering blood and treasure. But you don't just pick an arbitrary date of nine eleven because of its symbolic significance and say we're going to be out by then. You know, I think uh, I think Trump's plan was probably predicated on not having an election stolen and having another four years to work this out, but. Uh, why not withdraw in the wintertime when the Taliban sort of goes into hibernation, goes up into the mountains or back into Pakistan, and you start removing your civilians, you start removing your Afghan allies, and then eventually that ring closes and you pull out your diplomatic personnel, and, and then finally your military is the last ones out. Uh, not in some unplanned panic. Uh, and, uh, you know, I do blame the military uh, because they didn't have the intestinal fortitude or the cojones to stand up and say, this is wrong. I'm going to resign my commission. And they could go work for PAE or TACI or any number, you know, big money defense contractors. Right. You know, Paid a lot more money than they're making now as four-star generals. Um, don't you think these? Don't you think these high-level senior officers who've been complicit in this uh, and also the CRT need to be held accountable? Absolutely. I mean, now we understand white rage, and now we're woke, and now we, you know, we have uh, equitable understanding and, and all this crap. Um, but you know. Obama started the purge of the military under under his administration yeah. of eight years. A lot of the true uh, leaders, uh, I'm talking about flag officers, admirals and general officers, right. were removed. Um, and now we have the compliant yes men. Uh, I'm extremely disappointed, you know, with, with Millie. I'm extremely disappointed with McKenzie with, uh, you know, and, and as well-meaning as they may be, and they're still taking orders from their political masters. Well, that's not an excuse in my book. It, you know, the not, Nuremberg excuse doesn't work. I was just following uh, orders is bullshit. Right. You know? I, I have the utmost respect for that Marine Battalion commander who he knew what the consequences would be of, of coming out publicly. 
and uh, resigning his commission. Unfortunately, he may be prosecuted, and I hope he gets some pro bono representation. Uh, but that was a bold and courageous move, and I wish that our senior military leaders had the balls to do the same. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, they don't. And uh, you know, and when I heard General Milley, who's also a special forces guy, uh, he should have his tab revoked. But talking about wanting to understand white rage, I'm like, we are so screwed. Well, he's he's a Marxist infiltrator in my book. I mean, not to get off topic. That's and a whole other show. Disappointed with senior levels of leadership. Now I will say that at lower levels, that's the shadow organizations that are true patriots that yeah. are basically disregarding their leaders' instructions and doing what's right. Um, I'm not going to say any more about that because I don't want to get anyone into trouble. But I am disgusted and ashamed of our senior military leaders as much as our senior political leaders. And I use that word leaders very loosely because they're all yes men. So, Jamie, tell us, tell us, uh, give us the, the, the website, um, the URL for the 12, what is it? So the 24, the 2414 world is the primary uh, 501c3 that we're using. Now we're playing the shell game. We're getting money in to GoFundMe, which goes to 2414 world. We're getting money into the Archangels project, another 501c3. Before you, before you go to Archangels, okay, so they go to www.2414world, but then when they get to the site, people need to know that they have to designate it to the Afghan uh, refugee program because 2014 right. has about 14 different categories that you can do designate your donation to. Right. There is a code 406. There's a drop-down menu, and they can pull down. Uh, it's uh, Afghani Refugees 406, I think, is, is the actual earmark code. Um, but it's fully tax-deductible. It's IRS-compliant. We have accountants and lawyers that oversee that. And my colleague is the only individual that has release authority to uh, to approve distribution of those funds. So we our mutual know. friend, our yes, mutual, our mutual friend, friend. sister. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the Archangel Project is is how how do people donate to that? The uh, Archangels is. Uh, let's see. I will certainly send you this. I've got so many windows open here. The Archangels Project is i don't have that in front of me i've got i've got to send that to you okay well send that to us and what we'll do is we'll post it on the interview it's not we'll post it in the interview we'll put it at the end of this, this, this interview so people can know where to go to so send us the two urls for that okay uh, and we'll we'll put it up as a board at the end of this interview so people know where to donate to and there, there's also a gofundme site um which is also linked to 20 it's uh saving lives afghanistan evacuation okay which has right. a url that's a mile long but it goes to 2414 world um so we can't do anything without resources money makes the world go around unfortunately uh we have had some very generous donors uh, that money is quickly spent, and uh, it's uh, it's keeping fuel and gas tanks to shuttle people around. It's to provide food and water and sanitation for these people that are in safe houses. Some of it's used to bribe their way through checkpoints. Uh, all kinds we should, of. We should let the audience know that is what happens in a war zone. Right. And journalists right. know that, that sometimes you have to pay your way through checkpoints to cover the wars. And if and I can say that, you know, there's a lot of things that I had to do to do my human trafficking investigations to survive as well. And fixers and translators and protectors and security. And, you know, this is you're in a you're in a black hole and then you're you're in a black market when you're when you're extracting or you're covering or you're, you know, serving it. 
and Absolutely. That's, that's the name of the game. And the high the high dollar items are procuring aircraft, helicopters, and fixed wing airplanes that they don't come cheaply. Uh, we have had some some people, uh, some airlines, some uh, third third party governments that have really donated flights to us, but we have to get the passengers there to get on the flights. Right. Right. So that's, that's the challenging part for us. But we, we have the resources with, except for the money to pay for them. And that's very frustrating to be in that position. We uh, we have people that are in transit now and they're they're kind of in this purgatory until we get money that we can actually move them out of the country. And every day that goes by puts them in, in greater danger and you know peril. Uh, so uh, any donations are, are greatly appreciated. They're greatly needed. And I can assure you that the, this money will be wisely spent. And the return on the investment is great. I don't want to get into operational details, but we've already been able to save uh, just in our organization, probably conservatively over 2,000 individuals. Um, and we've also probably facilitated there's another organization that we work with they flew out an aircraft that i think had 270 souls on board uh, so that's a very rewarding feeling uh, i just got uh, early this morning uh, in the middle of the night i got a text from an individual that said he's in fort bliss texas so we moved him and his family. Uh, we got them out. They went to Doha, Qatar, then to Italy, then to Philadelphia, and now they're in Fort Bliss. We have an army of pro bono immigration attorneys that have graciously volunteered their time to assist these individuals that we still owe so much to. And not only processing their immigration status and get them assimilated into uh, American society. But we also have people that are trying to relocate them geographically in the United States, hopefully find them jobs. Uh, we have dog handlers, interpreters, finance specialists, and all these people are English speakers. That's, that's why they came to us in the first place was because of their skill sets and, and their English language capabilities, of course, was one of them. So uh, if anybody has any ideas of how we may uh, house and employ any of these Afghan refugees, we're all about that as well. Very good. Jamie, thank you very much for joining us today. Keep us informed. Come back anytime. Um, and, and hopefully... You know, you'll be able to succeed in what you're doing because it really Just is. Thank, God, thank, thank you for this platform. I'm going to get you other colleagues that have unique stories, uh, all different angles as far as some of duplicity from our own State Department. Um, we did get an email asking to move some people that were important to the administration when I opened up the Excel spreadsheet. It was from Open Society. Now we haven't charged anybody. George Soros's group, uh, yes, is now George asking Soros. you to help them get their That's people amazing. out of Afghanistan. Yeah. Wow, wow, yeah. and and you're looking for money, and George is right up there, and they're asking you to get yeah. it out. Because I would have made the exception. Out. I would have made the exception for George Soros's people. I would have bled him for every dime I could get out of him. And that would go on to help worthy people exit the country. But, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of people that want to help us move. I'm not, I'm not out to shame anybody publicly outside of George Soros, but we've had people from different organizations have asked us to move their people, and we're happy to do so. But these are organizations that have a lot of money. They're companies. They're educational institutions. They are agencies. Uh, you know, and I hate to say it's pay to play, but, you know, these, these airplanes don't come cheap. And uh, right. it's, uh, you know, it's all about having the resources to move these people. And if they're vetted, I don't really care who they belong to, but 
it's time for people to start opening their checkbooks. If they're so about supporting this, then uh, they can certainly support us financially uh, besides a uh, pat on the back. Well, maybe maybe we should invite Michael Vachon, who lives up in Manhattan, who, who works for George, to come on the program and ask him about that. Because uh, I've got his I've got a cell number. Why not? Yeah, why, yeah, not? why not? Exactly. Explain, I mean, explain. you know, it, it's the it's the the black market of NGOs overseas, which really? we all know so well. Explain okay. this to me. <laughs> yes, exactly. But I, I will get you some other people from our organization. Uh, some may have to be shot in silhouette or just do the audio, perhaps because of their backgrounds. And, but uh, they all have very interesting stories to tell from various different angles of this whole debacle. So uh, I think, like I said, uh, part of our, our longer term strategy is to bring a lot of this duplicity to, uh, to light and educate the public of what's really going on. That's uh, an important story to be told as well. Well, thank you for thank you for uh, for being on the show today, and uh, you're always Thanks welcome. Thanks for having back. me. Enjoyed it and honored. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. Thanks. Thank you, Kristen.